Uh, you know, uh, if, it's great to see all of you. Our, our college group, um, you know, our, our church, we're, we're on mission. And our college group, you know, we were cognizant that uh, in the fall, uh, people are looking for churches. And we believe that discipleship or following Jesus, it happens best, it's God's design uh, in relation to the local church. Uh, to be sent out for commission for the greater world. And so this is our annual college outreach event. If you're a college student, um, please invite a friend. Uh, if you don't have friends, make one and then, and then bring them. Uh, if you just know someone who is college-aged, uh, please invite them to this. And I think it'll just be a great time where we really celebrate uh, the love of God and there's going to be student testimonies and, and it's going to be fantastic. Uh, if you look on the screen, the second announcement is Grow 301. And so GROW is really the discipleship training arm of our church. And so if you're someone, you're like, gosh, I just feel like I haven't been growing, uh, the response we would give is, well, have you taken a GROW class? GROW 301 is training in the foundational kind of truths or theology um, of what the Bible has to say. And so this is coming up. And so signups are going to be outside in the patio after service, and you can sign up online as well. Uh, the third announcement, if you look on the screen, is we have our uh, Go Guatemala team, uh, a wonderful team. Um, they'll be partnering with uh, Dory's Promise in Guatemala, working with an orphanage. And uh, so if you see uh, one of these ladies, please give them just a high five or, and just let's pray for them as a church as we continue to go on mission. All right? Okay, uh, if we could take our Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, Acts 18. I think we're still recovering from that, that video. <laughs> Acts 18. So, you know, uh, back in 2007, Apple, uh, they came out with an announcement saying that they had devised a revolutionary product. And, and they said that this device would, would change the world. And when that announcement was made, uh, I remember there were so many different responses. I remember one specific uh, kind of uh, remark by a certain CEO who laughed at the concept of that device and said, really, like, who's going to buy that thing for $500? And it's hard to believe that it's been over 10 years since the release of the first iPhone. We are old. (laughs) And the iPhone has truly change the world. It really has been a revolutionary product. And what's remarkable is that uh, this week, uh, Apple just released a new updated iPhone that will be selling for over $1,000. The reason why I bring this up is is because, I I don't know about you, but for me, uh, there's something about uh, revolutionary ideas or kind of rare movements and moments in, in history that have always kind of piqued my interest. Maybe it's because I'm kind of pursuing the, the pastoral route, but I think it goes deeper than that because you know, if we're honest, you and I as, as Christians or as followers of Jesus, don't we proclaim to believe the most revolutionary idea in the history of the world, right? I mean, you and I, we believe, we say, when we affirm that God, the, the creator of the universe, has broken into human history to unite all things, to reconcile all things back to himself, centered on the the life, 
and the death and resurrection of Jesus our Lord. And we believe that God is calling back sinners to himself. I mean, you and I actually believe that, that that's the good news, the gospel. I mean, there could be no idea more revolutionary than that. And when we examine human history, the gospel really has revolutionized or changed the world. I mean, today there are millions of people who claim allegiance to Jesus, which is remarkable considering that just 2,000 years ago, it started off as a, a band of a few small, scared followers of Jesus who were kind of praying in an upper room to what it is today. And if you're kind of paying attention to what's going around uh, in other parts of the world, the gospel is spreading. It's unstoppable. The movement of God continues. And, and that's really exciting. And, and we, we can affirm that. But, you know, for us, as our church has been kind of on mission, have you ever considered what would it look like for there to be some type of gospel movement, some type of gospel moment, a, a, a type of like spiritual awakening that could happen potentially here in Southern California. And just, just dream with me for a moment. Just let's allow our imaginations to run wild a little bit. Could you imagine if your family members, if your coworkers, if people in your neighborhood, your city, imagine just a unique moment or movement where there was for some reason just a greater uh, desire and curiosity and an awakening for the things of Christ, for Jesus. Imagine people in a larger number giving their life to Jesus and committing to follow him. Imagine just a greater interest in the local church, a greater commitment, a greater uh, number of people being mobilized and, and commissioned for the world. I mean, just imagine that for a moment. Just, just try to imagine that. A spiritual awakening in Southern California. And my question is, how do those things happen? How does a spiritual awakening, like what's the formula? What are the components that are required for something like that to happen here where we live? See, I bring this up because the story that we're about to read today in Acts 18 is actually the story of a spiritual awakening that happens in an ancient city called Ephesus. Now, we, we, we want to pay attention to Ephesus because Ephesus, in their day, they were a booming, vibrant, and exciting city. Okay, so j- just for perspective, here, here's a, a couple of factoids about Ephesus. You ready? So located in Asia Minor, which is kind of modern-day Turkey-ish, uh, Ephesus was one of the largest cities in the ancient world with a population of roughly over, like around a quarter of a million. Um, politically, they were a power player. Uh, they, were, uh, they played as the seat of Roman administration where, where they lived in their region. Uh, geographically, they were located on a natural port, which meant uh, commerce, uh, business was just booming all the time. Uh, how about economically? They were the, the leading city of the most pro- prosperous region in the Roman Empire. They pretty much controlled the financial affairs uh, in their region of Turkey. Uh, and so this was Ephesus. It was a booming, thriving, cosmopolitan city. And it gets better because they were extremely spiritual. Uh, there were about 50 gods and goddesses that were worshipped in that city. And in fact, uh, Ephesus, they had kind of made a covenant and entered into agreement uh, with their personal god, the Greek god of Artemis, uh, as we'll kind of see uh, next Sunday. And they were a very spiritual people. In fact, Ephesus was known in their day to kind of be the center of 
magic and the occult practices. They had a booming industry of magic where they were curious about how to control spirits. And there was this industry of even exorcism where both Jewish and non-Jewish Gentiles alike, they kind of cooperated to have an exorcism industry and company. In other words, when you kind of see what Ephesus was like, they were like um, Southern California. Booming, vibrant, maybe not religious, but certainly spiritual. But here's what happened in Ephesus. There was a spiritual awakening. Something happened in that city where there was a greater awareness and desire for Jesus. And in fact, please don't turn here. I'm just going to read the description of the spiritual awakening that happened, okay? This is the description in Acts 19, 18. Listen to this. Also, many of those who are now believers, they came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts, they brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Okay, so, you know, back then they didn't have a, a lot of books. They didn't have Amazon Kindle deals. Okay, so they had scrolls which were expensive and rare. And yet the city, not everyone repented, not everyone came to Jesus, but enough came to the point that when they burned these magic scrolls and books like LeBron James had just left their city and they're burning the jerseys, Okay, it came to a total of 50,000 pieces of silver. Okay, so just for perspective, that's about 50,000 days worth of wages. So when you do the modern equivalent, pre-tax minimum wage, this is about over $4 million worth of books that are being burned. So you, you know something spiritual. You know there's some type of awakening when people are willing to turn to Jesus to the point that it really, really hurts their financial pocket. Like when an actual industry, the magic industry, when the kind of socioeconomical kind of sphere and ethos of the city turns upside down, spiritual awakening has happened. So my question is, how? How did this happen at a remarkable city like Ephesus? And furthermore, what can we glean and learn where maybe that can inform how maybe we can see a spiritual awakening potentially in here, Southern California? And so we're going to kind of discover this together by going back to the beginning of the story of Ephesus, and let's, let's see what happens, all right? So take your Bibles, eight, uh, Acts 18.24. Let's see how this uh, spiritual awakening comes to being. Verse 24 says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, that's the intellectual center of Egypt, he came to Ephesus. Okay, that's good news. And he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Okay, so stop right there. So right off the bat, the beginning stages of what happens in Ephesus it's going pretty well, right? Because in our minds, if there's a spiritual awakening that's supposed to happen, I mean, you, you need some kind of like charismatic figure at the center, right? At, at, at the epicenter of the movement. You know, he's got to be a good speaker. He's got to know his Bible. And so this, this seems like it's good news, right? So let's continue back in the story. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Uh-oh, 
Verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Thank God. Verse 27, and when he wished to cross to Achaia, what? The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who were who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ, uh, Christ was Jesus. Okay, so uh, let's just be honest. Maybe this is not how we, uh, the ideal starting point for a spiritual awakening might be, because here you have like the ideal protagonist for how a spiritual movement might start. Uh, he is gifted, he is talented, he's competent in the scriptures, he's courageous. Now, his theology, his understanding of certain things, yeah, sure, there was a little bit of deficiency, but you know, Priscilla and Aquila, they kind of come by and they kind of fill in the gaps. And so he's ready to be used, and then he leaves. He leaves Ephesus. You have the guy with the most potential, and he's gone. To which we say, like, that's okay. Because no man is indispensable and God can use anyone. In fact, he wasn't even an apostle, right? And so, I mean, God could kind of bring down an apostle and they can maybe form a launch team. And and that's how the spiritual awakening can start, right? So look with me in uh, chapter 19. Let's see how the narrative progresses in in verse one. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, that's the apostle, he passed through the inland country uh, and came to Ephesus. That's good. There he found some disciples. So here it is. So this is the forming of the launch team, right? You have Paul and you have these mature disciples and they're going to be like the Avengers that formed this team. Let's read in verse two. And Paul said to them, so did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Okay, so what in the world is going on here? So just quick background information, okay? So theologically, and that's just a fancy word for saying synthesizing biblical ideas together. Theologically, we believe, and many theologians believe, that you receive the Holy Spirit simultaneously with when you trust Jesus. So Ephesians 1.13 says, when you believe the word of truth, you were simultaneously sealed with the Holy Spirit. Believe Jesus, you get the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, you've trusted Jesus. It's a simultaneous work. But in the first century, in the book of Acts, which is a historical account of a unique period of time in which there were apostles writing scripture, belief in Jesus and receiving of the Holy Spirit were not always simultaneous. In their day, some would actually receive the Holy Spirit subsequent to or after believing the news of Jesus. Now, why? Why? Why would that happen? Well, because uh, in their day, the gospel was going into unreached regions where people had not even heard the name of Jesus. So if someone heard the name of Jesus, how were they or anyone supposed to know that they had believed the gospel, that they had even believed the right gospel? The only way to verify that was through on 
authentication or verification by apostolic authority. Meaning an apostle would come into the region and say, hey, like, so what did you guys believe? And they would say the gospel and they'd be like, wow, you guys really did believe the gospel. And heaven would confirm that authenticity, authentication by sending the Holy Spirit. So we see this happening in Samaria in Acts chapter 8. We see this happening again in Cornelius, which is a Gentile region in Acts chapter 10. Okay, so here's the point that I'm trying to make. These guys, Ephesus is a very green Christian space and environment. These guys are new Christians. Paul's like, hey, you guys ready to form the launch team? Have you heard of the Holy Spirit? No. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Oh my goodness. So here you have the apostle trying to form a launch team to do something in Ephesus. And he's like, hey, like, let's do this. Are you ready to do all this stuff? And they're like, uh, can we do Christianity 101? So here's what you have. You have the one intellectual gifted guy leave. He's gone. The launch team at Ephesus, green. Very, very young. Forget spiritual awakening. Paul has to do Bible study 101 with these guys, right? Okay, quiz time. Like, who's the Holy Spirit? Wrong. Okay, we got to go back. Do it all over again. This is not a launch team for some type of spiritual awakening. This is just training ground for young Christians. Now, you might be saying, yeah, but at least they had Paul the apostle. But was his ministry in Ephesus even that effective? Look with me in verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 8. And Paul, he entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some Jews, when they became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them and he took the disciples, the 12, with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia, they heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So, Let's be honest, was Paul effective? Yeah, I mean, he was effective as far as people hearing the news about Jesus. But was he effective in terms of people actually converting and believing the name of Jesus? No, not really. He was far more faithful than he was fruitful. So so here's what's going on here. In the city of Ephesus, you have the one guy who's really talented and he's intellectually capable and he's gone. Then you have this launch team and they're green. And Paul's ministry, good, okay. But yet, spiritual awakening happened in the city. So how? How did it happen? And we get our answer in verse 11. Look with me. And God. I'm going to repeat that for us. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. And Paul, I kind of recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. You can laugh, verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. 
And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts, they brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Okay, so do you kind of get the sense of what Luke is trying to paint for us? Who is the protagonist for spiritual awakening to happen in a city? God, the gifted, talented guy, gone. The young launch team, green. The apostle, eh, good. And God, and God was doing extraordinary things to the point that even the demons in the city, they recognized the name of Jesus. Do you see how Luke is trying to point us to say, look, I just feel like there were people, but maybe it was really God. So how did spiritual awakening, according to Luke, in the book of Acts here, in Ephesus, how did spiritual awakening come about? Not on account of the personnel of God. Not on account of man. Not on account of human gifting or strategic planning. But spiritual awakening happened on account of God. God's power. God's might. God's mercy. Now, here's why I bring this up. Uh, this morning, uh, there's a couple of different types of listeners in this room who are taking in this sermon differently. On the one hand, some of us um, who are listening, you could care less about spiritual awakening. Like, it is the furthest thing from your mind. You, like, you're exhausted. Life is difficult. There's something, there are real issues going on in your life. And so the furthest thing from your mind is spiritual awakening. And that's understandable. Others of us, the reason why we're not really uh, high on spiritual awakening is not because, you know, we, we think it's bad or anything like that. We, we just have higher commitments, right? So our, our position is, hey, I want God to move, but what I really care about is, is greater gospel clarity. Or, or maybe your conviction is, no, no, God's people, we need to be more holy. And so it's not that you don't care about the move of God, but you just have deeper convictions and passions, and that's a wonderful thing. But there might be someone in here, the, the reason why you don't care about spiritual awakening is when we kind of peel away the layers and we go deep underneath what's going on in your heart. The real reason why someone in this room, you do not care about spiritual awakening is because deep down inside, you do not believe God is powerful enough to do it. You don't think that God can create and stir something by his own sheer power. Sure, we objectively believe that God is powerful. Oh, we might even teach our children stories of the Bible. Look, look, see how mighty God is. He split the Red Sea. But when it comes to the actual like, reality of the spheres that we occupy, we don't really, really believe that God, of whom the demons tremble at his name, can do something powerful and work a miracle. We don't really believe. So that, that's, that's some listeners. But now here's the, the other uh, listeners in this room. You are convinced. Like you believe that God is powerful enough to do something like this, even today. But the issue is not that you don't believe that he is powerful because you do believe that he is powerful. But what we also believe is that we have a preset formula for how God enacts that power which is namely that God only moves 
when the right people come together doing the right specific things and only then, only then can God move in a powerful way. Okay, so, so some of us, we, we kind of grew up in, in maybe a spiritual environment where this was kind of the message, right? God wants to do a powerful work where we are at our church. So if you will pray enough, if you will fast enough, if you will repent of your sins enough, then, then God will do something mighty. Only if God's people would, would wake up and get on board, right? And so, so the subtle messaging that we received was that uh, God is not moving, God is not saving, God is not saving the person that we really care about because we're not praying one more sentence, because we're not fasting one more meal, all right? Because we're not, you know, repenting of that one secret sin in our life. And so, so now I'm not saying that our actions are inconsequential. I'll, I'll get to that more in a little bit. But what, what started happening was, whether intentionally or unintentionally, is that we, we started kind of placing ourselves at the center and epicenter of the move of God. As if God, who is so mighty and powerful, was trapped and limited, surely just by the works of his people. And if his people won't get on board, well, then God is trapped and God can't do anything powerful. And I drank this Kool-Aid. Like when I was in college, uh, I fasted meat for a year and a half. Beef, pork, chicken. I'm trying to get all that back. No, no, no. So our actions matter. But I'm just saying there's a dangerous spiritual narcissism where though our contributions do matter, we are not the total summation of God's power and plans for the world. See, see, see like, you know the story um, that we see at Ephesus? It's designed, I believe, to be humorously offensive. Humorously offensive. You know why? Because you know how we would envision a, a spiritual awakening at Ephesus? Here's how. Apollos, he's like this really talented guy. Then he teams up with Paul. And they're like this, like, they're like Captain America and Iron Man. And they, they form this team, and because of their great works and faith, God did something powerful. We, we, we Westerners, we like that. It's control. It's our power. We, we love that. But you, you notice how the narrative is like, no, that guy left. They're weak. And you know how repentance really happened? These seven guys, they got their butts kicked by a demon-possessed guy, and so fear fell on them, and people repented. That is offensive. Because at the end of the day, the only person we can really point to and give credit to is God and his power and plans. In fact, if you think about biblical history, does, is God really always limited to the holiness and the works of his people? No. In fact, you know where was the greatest spiritual awakening that ever happened in the history of mankind? It happened at an ancient city called Nineveh. In Nineveh, from the greatest to the least, They repented in sackcloth and ashes. A king decreed a fast. You know who was the messenger? A prophet named Jonah. The most sinful, prideful, arrogant, unloving, self-centered prophet in Israelite history. And by the way, when he showed up, he didn't even try. He he was just like, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Like that, that was it. That's not even a sermon. And what happened? Repentance. Why? Because of Jonah, right? Because, it, because Jonah was so holy, God worked powerfully. No, it was not because of Jonah. It was despite Jonah. It was because of God's own power. It was because of his own plans. 
Even the way that we talk about anointing, right? If you will just repent more, you'll be more anointed to do God's work. Is that really accurate? I mean, sure, it matters. But who are some of the most anointed people in the Bible? Some of the most sinful, like Samson. Samson was the most effective judge in the book of Judges. And he was also the worst judge in the book of Judges. Look, I'm just saying... Maybe the spiritual awakening thing is more dependent on God than it is us, and we have to be careful to place ourselves in the right place. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said, a revival is a miracle. It is a miraculous, exceptional phenomenon. It is the hand of the Lord, and it is mighty. A revival, in other words, is something that can only be explained as the direct action and intervention of God. It was God alone who could divide the Red Sea. It was God alone who could divide the waters of the rivers of Jordan. These were miracles. Hence, the reminder of God's unique action of the mighty acts of God. And revivals, they belong to that category. Men can produce evangelistic campaigns, but they cannot and never have produced a revival. Now, our prayers absolutely matter. It matters because it's not, it's not superstitious. It's not a superstition. Like the more that we pray, we build more spiritual points. And it's like that video game where once you get to enough points and you press all the buttons, it supercharges the church's activities. It's like when Mario eats the star and prayer is the star. And so you have to get more. And no, that's not, it's not super, that's not why prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful because of the one to whom we pray to. Because God, his word and his plans are powerful. See, what we do matters because it's preparatory work. We sow, we water, we strengthen other Christians, we share the gospel. It's preparatory work, just like how John's baptism of repentance was preparatory work for Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit. But we do preparatory work, but God does the power work and only God alone. And so this brings us to two uh, invitations and considerations for us this morning. The first one is, um, will will you dream and hope for a spiritual awakening to occur in your lifetime. I'm not talking about wishful thinking, but I'm talking about a, a, a yearning that comes not from confidence in ourselves, but a confidence because of the power of our God. And for some of us, it, you may feel like, yeah, but my generation, we failed. If you feel that way, will you still pray for this next generation, the the KKC kids and their generation? But the second uh, invitation is, will you engage in preparation work today, trusting God's power work tomorrow? How do we do that? Yeah, we pray. We have to pray. But there's two other uh, preparation work that we see from Uh, this passage that we read. Here's the first one. Pouring into other Christians. Pouring into other Christians. 
You know, I, I don't want us to lose in, in kind of the hoopla of what happened at Ephesus, uh, Priscilla and Aquila's gracious work in pulling aside Apollos and saying, hey, can we mentor you a little bit? Because you're gifted and stuff, but there's a couple of things, a couple of screws that are loose. We want to help tighten those things. We must not lose in the hoopla of Ephesus, Paul taking those 12 disciples and for two years, he preached at the hall of Tyrannus with them, meaning he was training them. How do we not know that the work of Apollos, there's still ripple effects today? How do we not know that when the church at Ephesus was established, some of these very 12 disciples whom Paul mentored rose up as leaders in the church of Ephesus? We don't know that. So we must pour in. And, and you know, I, I realize that this is kind of a, a nebulous and uncomfortable subject, right? Because it's like, I don't know all that much stuff. Plug for Growth 301. But, you know, I don't know that much. And, you know, what if I get something wrong? What if someone asks me a question? I have no idea. You know what I've discovered? A lot of the pouring in, it's just relational conversation. It's just sitting down with someone and just asking them questions and they feel encouraged. Like, you know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, I had a, the opportunity to sit down with a, a deacon at our church and just talk, just talk about life and church. He doesn't know this. And in fact, he doesn't even know that I, I'm talking, I, I was gonna put this in the sermon, okay? But I left so encouraged, so encouraged. I was strengthened by the things that he said. You know, some of it doesn't even have to be conversational. A lot of it, it could just be practical, right? So like, here's an example. Uh, our, our, we, our college students are, they're a little, little crazy. We, we have a, a group of Pepperdiners, Pepperdine University from Malibu, uh, and then some of them said, um, hey, we're going to organize rides for Pepperdine students. And so this, coming, this past Friday, they, they brought a bunch of Pepperdine students. And if you check their Facebook group, it's like, hey, fill, fill this out. Do you want to come on Friday? If you come on Friday, do you, do you need a ride back? Do you want to sleep over in the OC? <laughs> right? Can you, can you want to come Sunday? It, it's just simple, practical stuff that still pours into others pours into others. By the way, while we're here, some of us, we must pour in, but others of us, we must be more open to being poured into. See, we can learn from Apollos who was extremely talented and gifted and very teachable, and that may have been his greatest quality. Some of us, we went to Bible college. We we read some theological work, but maybe our hearts are not open to being poured into. So we must pour into others and be poured into. The second uh, preparation work is persist in pouring into someone who doesn't know Jesus. Persist, that's, that's the key word. Persist in pouring into someone else who doesn't know Jesus. You know, um, Paul wasn't the one who was really effective. But I don't want us to miss that he was in Ephesus longer than any other city of all of his missionary journeys. He was there for three years. It says daily reasoning in the hall of Tyrannus. So no, he he didn't see the fruit at that time, but he was faithful. Now, if you missed the all church retreat, quick way of summary, Pastor Michael, our guest speaker, he, he encouraged us that we can invest in these ways. We can invest relationally. Someone is in our life, we just, they just need relationship. But someone else in our life, it might be more of, hey, I want to invite you to church. 
But for someone else, it might actually be us sharing our, our story, our testimony, and weaving in the gospel in that testimony. Now, we might not be fruitful, but will we be faithful? Pour into other Christians, but persist in pouring into someone else who does not know. And then in the end, we just wait on God. And we just say, God, we've, we've done, we're doing the preparation work, but we're gonna trust you in your timing to do the power work. You know, if I could close with this, think for a moment of your own salvation. Did you save yourself? Did, um, did, did that one really faithful pastor, did he save you? Did, did the prayers of mom and dad or our good friend or the invitation? No, no, that, that was all just preparation work. But who had the power to save someone like you and me? It was God himself. Not only did he have the power but he had the desire, the love. He wanted to save you. He wanted to bring you to himself to the point of crucifying his son on a cross. So if God can have the power and the desire to save someone like you and me, then maybe, maybe he also has the power and the desire to save someone else somewhere. But it's going to be up to him and his power. Let's pray.